Welcome, Fright fans. Lock all your doors, close the curtains, and turn off the lights as it's time for Movie Muse Episode 10, the Halloween Horror Special. In this episode, we're in the depths of the Movie Muse morgue to bring our memories of our favourite horror films back to life. We'll also have our usual features such as What Have We Been Watching, Coming Soon, Film Club and Classic Scene, and keep listening until the end of the show for details of some changes to future episodes of the Movie Muse podcast. Here in the morgue we have a veritable who's who of magnificent monsters. First, a hairy beast that can often be seen howling at the moon on a Saturday night, especially if he's had a few beers. It's Simon Wolfman Burton. Oh, good evening. Next, he's sometimes found prowling the streets of Essex looking for a nubile woman to sink his teeth into, especially if he's had a few beers. It's Graham the Count Mason. Good evening. And finally, a man whose personality can change dramatically following the consumption of certain liquids, especially if it's more than a few beers. It's Dr. Gordon and Mr. Sinclair. Boo. <laughs> and attempting to shock some life into my counterparts, I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Frankencorn. First up, a quick overview of what's been uploaded recently to the Movie Muse website, www.moviemuse.net. In addition to our weekly Freeview Movies Roundup, we have a review of real-life disaster movie Deepwater Horizon, the story of the 2010 oil rig explosion starring Mark Wahlberg, and we also have a couple of features to coincide with our horror-themed podcast. Graham gives us a rundown of 10 skin-crawling movies for Halloween, and we've also compiled a new YouTube video where we count down the team's top 10 horror movie death scenes. You can visit our YouTube page or our Facebook page to have a look at that. As always, we'll kick off the show with What Have We Been Watching?, I'll start this one off, and a couple of days ago I watched a film called Don't Blink. It's a 2014 independent film starring Mina Suvari, who was in American Beauty and American Pie, and Brian Austin Green, best known for his role in the original Beverly Hills 90210, but also from the Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show. Now I watched this expecting it to be a horror film, which is why I was watching it in the run-up to this show, but it's actually more of a mystery thriller. A group of 10 friends meet up at a remote hotel, miles from anywhere, with no cell phone service, and with all their cars virtually out of fuel. There's nobody there when they arrive, despite there being signs of recent visitors, and while they're searching the surrounding area for signs of life, one of them suddenly disappears. And as the story progresses, more of them start to inexplicably vanish, and panic starts to set in with the remaining friends reacting differently to the situation. And for a low-budget film, I thought it was pretty well shot and acted. It's got a good build-up of tension in the first half before getting more chaotic in the second. There is one giveaway regarding the budget, and that's that Mina Savari's character is actually the first to disappear, which I suspect is because they couldn't afford to pay her to be in the whole film. It has got pretty damning reviews from a lot of the general public that seem to be upset that it doesn't give any answers as to why people are disappearing, but the critical reviews have been pretty reasonable, and if you want a film that leaves things to your imagination rather than spoon-feeding you the story, I think it's worth a watch so i'll give that three stars and the second film i watched recently was inception the 2010 film directed by christopher nolan starring leonardo dicaprio joseph gordon levitt tom hardy and ellen page amongst others and i'm sure plenty of people have seen this but just in case you haven't dicaprio plays Cobb, the leader of a group that infiltrates people's dreams in order to steal secrets or influence the dreamer in some way and after failing to successfully get information from a powerful businessman played by ken watanabe he is tasked by that man to infiltrate a rival's dream and plant an idea but make the victim think that the idea was theirs this is what's called Inception and obviously gives the film its title. The film's basically a glorified heist movie with DiCaprio's character forming a team and planning the complex operation to successfully create Inception in the target's mind. And as with many heist movies, the part where they're planning the heist is really good and probably my favourite bit, but once the characters get into the various levels of this dream world, there are some spectacular action sequences and amazing visual effects. 
The performances of every actor in the film are top-notch. You'd expect it from the likes of DiCaprio, obviously, but even people that I wouldn't usually rate as good actors, particularly like Tom Hardy, for example, who I don't think I've liked in anything he's been in, are excellent. And Ellen Page as well, a bit outside her usual comfort zone, does a really good job in her role as well. Still can't decide whether it's brilliant or too clever for its own good. I did find the ending a little bit predictable, but there's no denying it's a brilliantly made film with top-notch acting and a fascinating story. Like most Christopher Nolan films, it probably needs a second watch to make a firm decision, but for now I'm going to go for three and a half stars. I've seen that, and I watched it a second time because I thought it needed a second viewing, and after two watches, I'm still am not sure whether it's clever or not. I can't say I'm a particular fan of the direction, though, to be honest, and the visuals were spectacular, but not particularly interesting. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was a bit bland in places, the landscapes, and I didn't really get why they went to a snowy world for one of the dreams. It looked visually impressive, but I don't really know what the purpose of that was in the context of the scenario that they were in. But there you go. So that's what I've been watching recently. Graham, what have you been watching? I've watched a couple of movies recently of note, both sci-fi movies. The first one was called Moon, which was from, I think, 2010. I've had it on DVD for ages. Always heard a lot of good things about it. I haven't heard anyone say anything bad about it, so I thought it was about time I gave it a watch. It stars Sam Rockwell as the sole human in charge of a facility on the moon, which is supposed to be collecting, I think, the sun's energy for use back on Earth. And with only a few weeks to go until he's due to be relieved, Rockwell starts to see strange things and has an accident aboard a mining vehicle. Stranded outside the base, he's rescued by none other than himself. And from then onwards, understandably, starts to question his own grip on reality. It's a good little film. It's very well acted by Rockwell and obviously not very many other people and has a really tight script at the centre of it and it only goes on for like an hour and a half, which is always good in my mind. However, I did feel it revealed a little bit too much of its central plot too early on. So the last 20 minutes felt a little bit anticlimactic, even though it did utilise a sort of cinematic trick that's been used in many times, most famously in High Noon, where there's some people arriving at a certain point and it's slowly counting down down to that time but overall despite some slightly dodgy model work or some of the vehicles on the surface of the moon i think this is a great little film especially if like me you're a fan of all types of sci-fi movies so i'd give moon four out of five one of the interesting things about moon is that it was one of the few films that year that used only physical effects so they didn't use cgi for any of the uh, mm. surroundings which i thought was pretty good it's pretty good, but maybe they should have used a little bit of CGI because <laughs> on a couple of occasions the models really do look just like models, which kind of took me out of the movie a little bit. And the second movie of note I saw is called Skylines. And like Moon, heard a lot about this, but the other way, generally negative rather than positive. It's an alien invasion movie from a few years ago, and for the first half hour of this, I thought it was pretty good actually. Various diverse cast members find out in the usual way what's going on, how to escape it, loads of people being abducted by the aliens. Then you start to get the payoff scenes, and there are actually some impressive monster effects start to appear. But unfortunately, this film was ruined for me by its ridiculous ending, which not only made very little sense, but also looked like it was completed using stills, which was very odd. And it was apparent to me that the filmmakers simply ran out of money. And interestingly, the filmmakers, I believe, are the same guys that did the second Alien vs. Predator movie, which I thought was awful. So, if anything, this is a step up from that, even though it still only gets two out of five from me. 
I watched that a couple of years ago, I think, and I feel exactly the same way. It had the makings of a good film, but then the last half hour or so, it just... You know, I think I even fell asleep before it had finished. It was just so unimpressive at the end. It was just like I didn't even want to watch it. Sleep was a more appealing option. Thanks, Graham. Simon, what have you been watching recently? The new Red Dwarf is on, so I've been watching that. The first two episodes have been on, which are pretty cool. I've liked both of them so far, especially the first one. Very clever. The films I've been watching, nothing too exciting. I've just watched the new Ghostbusters movie. It stars Melissa McCarthy, Christian Wiig, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones and Chris Hemsworth. And is the third film, technically, in the franchise. It's just a similar sort of thing. The four girls just sort of form the Ghostbusters franchise. They get together. They find out that there's stuff going on in the city. PK energy is going up as usual. And it's just pretty much the first film trying to be just done again. And I just don't see why they actually had to remake this. It's just pointless, to be honest. I didn't think the story was particularly engaging. I didn't mind the characters, which I thought I would at the start. I think Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig had some good dialogue and good interaction between them. And wasn't so keen on the other two guys. And Chris Hemsworth, I just thought, was a pointless character. I just thought the CGI was poor. The whole story was very flat, nothing really to it. And the ending was atrocious. It's great to see cameos from some of the original guys in there. But they weren't actually anything to do with Ghostbusters. They were just people they met. And I was really disappointed that they didn't even come back in as the older guys, coming back to show them what they did in the past. And it should have followed on from the other films, not just be the same film again. For trying and for the interaction, some of the effects were pretty good. And the fact that he's got Ghostbusters on the front of it, I'll give it two out of five. I reviewed it for the website and I'm quite surprised to see that I gave it a higher score than you. It got 2.4 on the website. But I actually thought Hemsworth was all right in it. It was overwritten, his character being really dumb. But I thought he played the part really well. I've not seen the film yet and I'll probably watch it at some point. It's not high on my list, I must admit. But Chris Hemsworth, I mentioned this on last month's show when he was playing a rather stupid role in the remake of Vacation. I don't get why he feels the need to do these kind of roles. I guess it's just a quick payday for not really having to do very much. You know, he must be making a fortune doing Thor and he's certainly capable of doing better films in terms of acting. But for some reason, he seems to take on these rather dumb roles in these comedies as well. Another film I've watched, it's been on my list for years and I've never ever got around to it. And it happened to be on TV the other night. It's the 2004 Buddy Cop film, Starsky and Hutch. It's obviously Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson's vehicle. And it was an adaptation on TV series. It's the same kind of thing, but they try and portray it that it's a prequel to the TV series. It's just when they first got together. And if you look at it from that point of view, it sort of works. What I don't get, apart from it, is just a typical Stiller and Wilson film. It just happens to be vaguely about Starsky and Hutch. They swap the personalities of the characters and they're just complete opposites to what they are in a TV series. And that's just pointless. Again, I just don't see why they had to do that. You can still make it your own, but just still play Starsky and Hutch how we know Starsky and Hutch. Don't swap them around and just be completely different. Obviously, the foreground screen is excellent. I like the style of the film. You know, all the 70 soundtracks. Huggy Bear, played by Snoop Dogg. Doesn't really do a lot of acting in it, but he has someone to play Huggy Bear. I would probably choose him to do it. But again, another remake like Ghostbusters. I didn't think it really needed to be remade. So again, I'm just disappointed. Again, I'll just give it two out of five. Oh, sigh. Give it three. Go on. Do it. No. Do it. <laughs> I really like that film. You know, it's hardly Oscar-winning material, but I just find it really entertaining. I've never really watched the original Starsky and Hutch, so I don't have anything to compare it to. I didn't know they swapped the personas of the characters, but it was good fun. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that film. I enjoyed it as well, and I'm like you, Matt, I'm not a fan of the original series. And rounding up, what have we been watching, Gordon? I've watched quite a lot of films, so there's a few that I'm not going to talk about. 
such as Ken Loach's Palm Door winning I, Daniel Blake, which is an amazing look at the bureaucracy and hypocrisy of the British welfare state, or Star Trek Beyond, a turgid threequel that goes to show what a difference a director makes. I'm not going to talk about that one either. So what I'm going to talk about is, firstly, Swiss Army Man. The film could easily have been called 101 Ways to Use a Corpse, as Daniel Radcliffe plays a flatulent dead guy who's befriended by a suicidal man stranded on a desert island. And their adventures are more where the wild things are than Weekend at Bernie's, as the film becomes a magical journey of self-worth. It's definitely one of my best movies of the year, and it's easily Radcliffe's best performance in any film I've seen him in, and again goes to prove just what an inherent risk-taker he is in the scripts that he's taking. I think, you know, you come out of Harry Potter and The World's Your Oyster, and he could have easily gone down all of the teen movies, and he's just gone completely the opposite way and chosen some fantastic indie movies. He's not the greatest actor in the world, but I've got a lot of respect for Daniel Radcliffe, and I'll give that four stars. Absolutely magical, that film. Really good. (laughs) <laughs> very good no that wasn't a pun <laughs> really it had nothing to do with the fact that daniel radcliffe was harry potter then oh no 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 no. there's a great scene at the start which is sat on a corpse in the sea using the corpse's flatulence like a speedboat and he's riding this corpse across the sea and that would have put me off if somebody had explained it to me but actually it's a brilliant scene and a brilliant film my second is a british film called level up After watching the film, I found its blurb, name, and even the font they use for the credits to be particularly disingenuous, as it tries to convince you that it's in some way related to video games. It isn't. What it is, is a girl gets kidnapped, man has to save her by doing silly tasks, only to realise that everything he does is being watched by people on CCTV, and they're betting on the outcomes. Its low budget and dodgy lead performance make it hard to recommend, though it does do a reasonably good job of showing off its London locations, and I'll give that two out of five. I think that rounds up what have we been watching, apart from the WAG's choice. Last month's choice was Gordon's better half, Nancy. Gordon, do you want to tell us what she chose and your thoughts on a rating? Nancy chose Brighton Rock, which is a 1947 British film noir starring Richard Attenborough as Pinky Brown, a young gang leader looking for revenge on a man who double-crossed the gang. When their disposal of the unwanted acquaintance is disturbed, Pinky must woo a young waitress and convince her to keep quiet about his movements. Extremely violent for its time, the film had to be released with a special note at the start, pointing out that the film portrayed Brighton between the two wars when it was a much darker place, but everything's all ice cream on the beach and donkey rides now, honest gov. Richard Attenborough's performance has since been lauded as one of the most unforgettable bad guy performances in British cinema history. But at the time, Graham Greene, the author, was unhappy about the casting, thinking that Dickie didn't look evil enough to play the part. But after seeing the final film, Greene famously wrote to Attenborough to apologise and tell him that there could have been no one better for the role. And I absolutely love the film. And while the overacting of Hermione Baddeley as Ida can get a little too much, the wonderful performances from all Pinky's gang, and especially from the wonderful Carol Marsh as the naive Rose, help to drive a fantastic tale of threat and deceit. The final scene is one of my favourite movie endings of all time, and I'm scoring Brighton Rock the full five out of five. Let's see what the rest of us thought about it. Simon? I've always interested in that sort of style and that sort of era, and I was really looking forward to actually watching it, and it didn't let me down. I thought the acting was good on the whole. I thought Attenborough's Pinky Brown was very well played. He had that underlying dark, that just the look on his face every time he was in. He smiled, I think, only about once in the whole film, and just a, just a slight hint of a smile. It just had that look of evil on his face, and I felt so sorry for poor Rose, and she played that part really well. 
especially when he recorded the record and she thought he was going to say oh I love you on it and he told her he thought she was a horrible old slut so I thought that was pretty cool but that ending with the scene on the pier proving what a coward he was really under all that and the thing was I love that bit like Gordon said the ending with the record and it just scratched it at the right point that we assume that she never found out what he'd said and she was happy I thought it was a great film really enjoyed it I'll give it four out of five thanks Simon Graham like Simon, this was a very good choice for me because it's a film I'd wanted to watch for ages because I'm quite a fan of films of this era. So it was a good opportunity and I greatly enjoyed it. I agree with the other guys. Richard Attenborough, obviously a standout in it. He gives a performance, in my opinion, to rival his other great role of or certainly favourite of mine, which was as the serial killer, John Christie in Ten Rennington Place. He just oozes menace and call throughout and especially has that air of unpredictability, which, of course, all the best movie villains possess. Right from the start, really, with the scene where he's shown the newspaper and the camera just pans straight onto his face, and it's like almost unnoticeable twitches. And from then onwards, his character is just brilliantly portrayed, I think. There's also a likeable turn by William Hartnell as the tough gangster with a heart, and he says what is my favourite line in the movie... I was married myself once when I was young. It sort of gets on your nerves, which certainly made me laugh as well. But there are parts of the movie that didn't gel too well for me. For instance, Ida Arnold. She seems remarkably obsessed in solving the death of Fred Hale, considering she hardly knew him and she just met him. And in contrast to what Simon and Gordon says, I also found the performance of Carol Marsh, who played Rose, I found her so wet in places, I was starting to wonder whether she hadn't fallen off the pier as well as poor old Fred Hale. But overall... I enjoyed Brighton Rock a lot. It deserves its status as a classic film in British film history. And I would also praise the ending, like Gordon did, which I thought was very good. Very much different from the ending of the book. But I think it actually worked better in this case. So I'd give Brighton Rock four out of five. Okay, well, that just leaves me. And I'm going to have to disagree with most of you, I think, to a certain extent. There are a lot of things that you've said that I do agree with. But my problem is, I can see that it would have been a good film in its time. But I just really struggle to watch or enjoy it. I can't take films this old seriously. I can't connect with them. They just seem so dated and from a different age. The acting in particular seemed really like over-theatrical from everyone, not just from the characters that have been mentioned. And considering it's supposed to be a thriller, I didn't think it was particularly thrilling. It just seemed to drag on with a lot of talking and not much meaningful end to that talking. I agree with you, Graham. The character of Rose was ridiculous, frankly. Falling in love with basically the first bloke that asked her out, then being besotted with him, and then abandoning all common sense when she finds out what he's really like and still just sticking by him. I agree with the rest of you. The only thing I did like was the ending, where the record got stuck, which certainly gave me a smile. I feel like I shouldn't give it a rating at all, because it just wasn't for me, even though I can see why people would have liked it at the time. It was probably a five-star film at the time, but I'd give it two and a half stars by modern standards. It's like Space Invaders. It was a classic in its day, but now it's a bit shit. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, I just can't get my head around those films. I do, just... I do get where you're coming from with yeah. that because I've watched a few classic American film noir not that long ago, and I think it's the same there. I do think that there's this stiff kind of wooden over theatrical acting. But I think you either get it or you don't. I think I do get it, and I do like that and I obviously didn't. <laughs> anyway, we've totted up the scores and the average score for Brighton Rock is 3.9, which I think makes it top out of our Wags Choice films. That brings the Wags Choice segment to an end. We'll leave it there with one choice from each of our Wags. 
Next up is our film club section, where, as always, one of the members of the team chooses a film, we all watch it, and then we share our thoughts on the following episode. Last month's pick was from Graham, who chose the 1983 British film Party Party. Unusually, for film club, we actually all watched this together at Graham's house a few weeks ago. So to kick things off, Graham, tell us about the plot of Party Party and give us your thoughts and rating. There's a party. That's the plot, unfortunately. Not a lot to Party Party. I knew nothing about it. It's not a film I'd watched before. It was purely because I'd seen the record in a second-hand record shop, thought that's a good soundtrack, and bought it, and then found out it was a movie. I thought it was a compilation of some sort. Bought the movie on DVD, and when the opportunity came up to select it for Film Club, I took that because I thought from the cover it looked all right. It looked like a sort of 80s movie that could be quite fun. I suppose it was fun in some respects, but I don't know if it was supposed to be like a screwball slap around comedy or something but it's rather nonsensical it's all over the place the acting is generally quite poor from a lot of people whose careers haven't really progressed beyond a few sitcoms on tv and i think for good reason we all watched it together and like you said we were we were half cut for half of it but i think really it was interesting to watch it because it's a slice of cinematic history that maybe we wouldn't have watched but it was pretty poor really there were lots of things that happened in it that made no sense like for instance one moment there'd be a food fight going on with cakes going everywhere which bizarrely appeared out of nowhere and then a couple of scenes later it would all be cleared up in the middle of this party and it was just bizarre plotless nonsense really and I'm afraid although I did get some enjoyment out of it it wasn't very much and I would score it two out of five. Thanks Graham. Simon what were your thoughts? Well that early 80s sort of era is something which obviously I don't remember quite well being the older states from around here. I went to a few parties that were very similar to that, just not so many cakes thrown around and stuff. But yeah, it was a bit of a mishmash, really. Some bits were quite enjoyable, a little bit of fun out of it. Other bits just didn't make any sense at all. It was really weird how they tried to cram in all different sort of storylines into one party, but then none of them really led anywhere. Nothing really happened. I like that early 80s look, the hair and the clothes and stuff, because I remember it really well. But there was nothing I really gleaned from the film that was that enjoyable. Carolyn Quentin, I suppose, with the top open a bit was not too bad, but that was about it. I'll just give it two out of five just because I remember living through that sort of era. Well, I did say it looked terrible based on the DVD cover, I think, last episode, and I'm pretty happy to say that I was right. As you said, it had very little plot and just seemed to be a collection almost of sitcom sketches thrown together in a haphazard way with poor continuity. It was funny, but not really because of the story, just because of how bad it was. But I do think watching it all together made it a bit more enjoyable as we all had to live through it at the same time. The plus side for me was the soundtrack, which I thought was pretty good 80s fare, and I can understand why you bought it, Graham. And it was one of those films also that had you look on IMDb for the actors every 10 minutes and we saw a lot of people on there that are still active on BBC TV shows and so on to this day so overall a fun experience but not really because of the film so one and a half stars from me Gordon your thoughts well it's definitely got an absolutely terrible script with some shockingly bad jokes and nothing really happens apart from a curvy girl gets bullied for being fat binge drinkers cause chaos yobs cause fights and an adulterous bride and groom try and get the last fling and that basically is everything that happens but and it's probably because of us all watching it together and being able to laugh with and at it as a group i quite enjoyed it thinking about a score well i scored star crash two out of five I'd much rather watch Party Party again than watch Star Crash again, so I think I'm going to have to give it 2.5. Okay, thanks, Gordon. That makes it very easy to work out the average. So the average score for Party Party is 2 out of 5, which puts it stone bottom on our leaderboard below Star Crash. (laughs) 
which is actually quite a fitting end to the first sort of phase of Film Club. Normally now we go through what's coming next show, which will be Gordon's pick, but we're going to cover that later as part of our revamp of the podcast. Let's now move on to our next section, which is coming soon, where we each share our thoughts on a film coming to cinemas within the next few months. So let's kick off that section with Gordon. I've picked Passengers, and the blurb says, On a routine journey through space to a new home, two passengers sleeping in suspended animation are awakened 90 years too early when their ship malfunctions. As Jim and Aurora face living the rest of their lives on board, unable to deny their intense attraction, they discover the ship's in grave danger. With the lives of 5,000 sleeping passengers at stake, only Jim and Aurora can save them all. Which sounds, apart from the romance bit, quite an interesting story. It stars Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, and it's directed by Morton Tildum, who did The Imitation Game, and it's written by John Spates, who wrote the script for Prometheus, but also has a number of other high-profile movies out pretty soon, such as Doctor Strange, a reboot of The Mummy, and the Pacific Rim sequel. So, you know, he's a pretty busy boy. I've liked what I've seen from the director and writer before, so I think that could be a good film. And that's out just before Christmas. I watched the trailer for that as well. It looks okay, but I fear it's going to veer more towards the romance side and less towards the sci-fi. That's, that's my exactly only concern about it. I didn't like the first part of the trailer because it was all about just them two having dinner and all that nonsense. But then it's looked a bit lot of action and it started to progress and seemed to have some potential towards the end. So I think the pedigree of the writer doing Prometheus, you know, he's got some science fiction pedigree behind him of tense, semi-action oriented films. So I'm hoping he can chuck a few explosions in there as well. Thank you, Gordon. Graham, what are you looking forward to? Obviously, it's coming up to Halloween, so there's a slew of horror films coming out. One that caught my eye, I'm not sure whether it's a remake, sequel, or whatever, but I loved the original Ring movie, the Japanese version. I've never seen the American remake. There was a movie coming out called Rings, which I'm intrigued to see what else they can do with the story. I didn't watch much of the trailer because I don't like watching too much of these films before they come out, so I must admit I haven't looked it up. But as I say, I am intrigued to see what else they do with the Ring stories, and I'm hoping that it'll be a decent horror flick. It certainly looks from the small amount I watched that it's got some good creepy moments in it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to Rings most, and I believe it's out in the next couple of weeks in order to time it with Halloween. Thank you, Graham. My choice, I'm probably picking this more because I know I've got to go and see it with my wife rather than because I definitely want to see it. But it does look good. I've watched all the trailers for it. It's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is a new story from J.K. Rowling set in the Harry Potter universe. But a lot earlier, Eddie Redmayne stars as Newt Scamander, who arrives in America in 1926 with a magical suitcase full of unusual and dangerous creatures which inevitably escape and cause chaos. I was never a massive fan of the Harry Potter films, but they did get better as they went on. And this film seems to be aimed at a more mature audience with a slightly darker tone based on the trailers. And I think it could be interesting to see the difference between the American world of magic compared to the British one established in the Harry Potter films. And of course, I'm intrigued to see what amazing creatures are in the suitcase and that's released worldwide on the 18th of november my biggest problem with that film is just that it seems like they've cynically moved harry potter to america to appease the 400 million americans who will go and see it well you're probably right to a certain extent but i do think they're using the move to america to show the world from a different perspective and there's also some kind of undercurrent of people rallying against magic users and all that kind of stuff from what i can tell and i do like that it's a period film rather than modern day i do like that so i do think it looks good despite how cynical i think the move to america is that just leaves simon who's got this episode's trailer choice what have you chosen for us 
My choice this month is a science fiction drama film directed by Denis Villeneuve, and it's based on a short story called The Story of Your Life by author Ted Chiang. The film is called Arrival, and it stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. The synopsis is when multiple mysterious spacecraft touch down across the globe, an elite team is put together to investigate, including linguist Louise Banks, Adams, mathematician Ian Donnelly, Renner, and U.S. Army Colonel Weber, Forrest Whitaker. Mankind teeters on the verge of a global war as everyone scrambles for answers. And to find them, Banks, Donnelly, and Weber will take a chance that could threaten their lives and quite possibly humanity. I always quite like these alien sort of, if not invasion as such, aliens visit the planet. No one knows what's happening. And just that fact that they've got to try and learn what's happening here. And as the tension heightens with the rest of the world are getting restless and want to just destroy them, they need to find out why they're here. It just looks a really interesting concept. And the film is scheduled to be released on November the 11th. Okay, let's take a look at that now then. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. I'm Colonel G.T. Webber from Army Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Who's being carted off in the medevac? Not everyone is wired for what you're about to do. So what do they look like? You'll see soon enough. Every 18 hours, a door opens up. That's where we go in. It's done. Yeah, that just happened. What happens now? They arrive. They need to see me. Dr. Banks? Are you insane? More objects have landed around the world. This is one of 12. I'm never going to be able to speak their words. Got two days. Figure something out. I am human. It's their language. We need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Language is messy, and sometimes one can be both. Are you dreaming in their language? possible they're prodding us to fight among ourselves this is just a way to force us to work together for once it's more complicated than that. how is it more complicated russia just executed one of their own to keep their secret we got 21 hours before they start global war so how do we clarify their intentions i go back in why does this feel worse Well, despite similarities to Independence Day with the big spacecraft settling across the world, it looks to be a more thoughtful alien visitors drama, probably along the lines of films like Close Encounters and Contact. It's already got pretty good reviews, I think, from previews, and a 100% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes seems to suggest it's going to be pretty good. But to be honest, it doesn't really look like the kind of thing I'd go and see at the cinema, so I'll probably just wait for the reviews and then watch it on Blu-ray when it comes out. Gordon, what did you think? To be honest, I don't think the trailer showed me anything new about the Alien Arrival film. And I think the bar was set very high by films like District 9. And this looks like it is going to get nowhere near those. I can't say I'm excited by it. Graham, how do you feel about it? 
it looks an intriguing movie, but we've had so many of these sort of invasion type movies over the years with big spaceships. These sort of movies really have to bring something new to the party. There is a hint in the trailer that there might be something more to it. And from the look of it, it has quite a good cast as well. I'm certainly a big fan of Jeremy Renner, who plays Hawkeye in the Avengers movies. So there's a lot of potential there. Hopefully it can live up to some of that potential. But I think it all hinges really on the plot and how that develops. And they manage to do the final kind of payoff to it, which obviously is not revealed in the trailers. But production values look good. It looks like a bit of money's been thrown at it. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this and I'll probably go and see it in the cinema if I have the time. Time to move on now to our main topic, which is this episode all about horror. Horror films have been around almost as long as cinema itself, with the first documented horror film being George Méliès' 1896 short The Haunted Castle. The genre became more prominent in the 1920s when German Impressionist filmmakers drew on classic Gothic horror stories as inspiration to produce films such as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu. Horror in the 1930s and subsequent decades was dominated by Universal Studios, who brought well-known monsters such as Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy and The Creature from the Black Lagoon to life. The 1960s brought new subgenres of horror. The genesis of the slasher movie came with Peeping Tom and Psycho, both released in 1960, while the concept of natural horror was developed with another Hitchcock film, The Birds. The end of the decade also saw the template for the zombie horror movie laid out in George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Throughout this era, many of the classic horror characters such as Dracula and Frankenstein were given a new lease of life through Britain's Hammer Horror films. Further developments in the horror genre came throughout the 70s and 80s with significant developments in special effects allowing ever more gruesome, gore-soaked sequences. Supernatural and occult horror films such as The Exorcist, The Omen and The Amityville Horror brought a more real-world approach, while the slasher movie came to the fore with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, each providing their own iconic anti-heroes. After a lull in the early 90s caused by an oversaturation of copycat films, the genre was reinvented in the mid-90s with Wes Craven's Scream, which added self-referential humour and pop culture nods to the slasher genre, spawning a new wave of films such as I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend. This period also saw another wave of classic horror films, with Gary Oldman playing Bram Stoker's Dracula and Robert De Niro portraying Frankenstein's monster. The end of the millennium saw the release of The Blair Witch Project, which introduced another subgenre, the found footage horror movie, which continues to this day with series such as Paranormal Activity and Wreck. From the 2000s onwards, yet more horror subgenres have come to the fore, from the graphic torture porn of the Saw and Hostel films to the more light-hearted zomcoms such as Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland. There have also been countless remakes and reboots of 80s horror franchises and Japanese horror films, plus plenty of psychological horrors, ghost stories and monster movies. The list is almost endless, but we'll try and make sense of this most terrifying of film genres. So let's kick things off with talking about what makes a good horror film. What are the important components of a great horror film and what kind of horror films do you like most? Graham, I know you're a big horror fan. Shall we start with you? I can start by saying one thing that doesn't make a good horror movie to me is excessive gore. Maybe I've become desensitised from it over the years, but if you have a movie which has got excessive gory scenes in it, decapitations and God knows what else, on its own, those sort of things just aren't enough to scare me anymore. For a horror movie to be a good horror movie, for me, it has to be one that builds up an atmosphere of unease and suspense and doesn't show its hand too early on. So really not showing, but insinuating, putting an ordinary situation and changing it subtly. A classic example would be films such as Psycho, 
or one of my favourite horror movies, The Shining, which itself doesn't have a great deal of gore, apart from maybe corridors full of blood at one scene. But the latter in particular shows an unravelling of a mind, and the viewer is always unsure whether what they're seeing is real or whether it's imagined by Jack Torrance. And in particular, the scenes where Jack Nicholson's character is in a bar, and this whole scene is imagined by the character, of course, and then he goes into the toilets and sees the serial killer from the hotel a few years earlier. And this sort of thing has been carried on lately in one of the new genres that you mentioned, Matt, which is found footage movies. And as an extension of this, these work very well for me because they have a limited scope. So they start off that there's not much going on. The the Blair Witch Project is a classic example of this. It's all quiet. Everything's normal. It's just people going on a walk or whatever, living their life in a house. And then slowly, strange things are introduced very subtly in the background all the time, which can sometimes catch you a bit unawares or sometimes maybe you don't even noticed but there's always like an atmosphere that's slowly being generated and built up and that drags you into the story plus of course a lot of these movies use effective editing and the tension behind them all helps as well that's not to say i'm just a fan of these recent movies i was a real big fan of scream and scream 2 the reinvention of the genre in the mid 90s Although, to be honest, because these movies, they're kind of slasher movies, I always treated them more as a thriller, almost a whodunit. You're always trying to work out who it is out of the cast that's actually behind all the murders. And although, obviously, they do have a lot of horror elements in it, and the ghost face mask is a classic horror thing, a few isolated moments apart, generally those sort of movies don't scare me too much. Back in the history of horror, anything involving sci-fi horror has always appealed to me. So films such as Alien, I think they're good in building up suspense keeping the monster always in the darkness and not revealing him too much that's always a good way of doing it little tricks like that keeping the jump scares to a minimum as well if you keep doing them again and again and again that reduces their effectiveness throughout the whole movie and making sure that everything kind of hangs together by the end as well because just because it's a horror movie doesn't mean that you can just have a cheap plot and it doesn't really matter or there's no big payoff everything has still got to work as a movie and that's where I feel a lot of the poor examples of the genre such as the later Nightmare on Elm Street movies really fell down in that respect so that's me for what makes a good horror movie yeah some very good points there I totally agree with your comments about excessive gore it's disgusting but it's not scary and it's never really has been scary unless it's combined with a good jump scare or something like that whilst I agree that gore isn't scary but as I get older I seem to be more impressed by gore but in a realistic way. So if you take a film like Green Room, which is not a horror as such, but there are a couple of scenes in there where Anton Yelchin's character gets hit with a machete across his arm and his hand's basically hanging off. That's a really striking scene, and that use of gore was brilliant. And I've started to enjoy more violence in films. It's becoming a bit more appealing to me, which is maybe a worrying character trait. I like to see more gore, but it actually scares me less than it used to do when I wasn't that interested in it. So what does scare you? What makes a good horror film for you? For me, it's all about surprises. But what I don't mean by that is jump scares. I've always been more of a thriller fan. So I like suspense, which rules out stuff where you know who the bad guy is at the start. So therefore, that rules out most horror sequels. Jason Part 76 or whatever. You know who the bad guy is. And it's more about what kills he's going to make rather than dragging the story along. I'm also not really interested in ghosts and like to keep things in the real world. So your paranormal activities, even things like poltergeist, I'm not particularly interested in the supernatural. So I wouldn't go for that in my kind of horror film. A good horror film to me does something new. 
I don't watch horror films because it's a genre I love. So they need to do something new or clever to win me over. And the kind of films that have done that, I think I would say are like The Ring, even though I know that was a remake. It was a new film to me and the Western audience. Blair Witch, Scream, Final Destination, It Follows. Those kind of things all did something different. And I'd much rather see them than Freddy versus Norman Bates 13 or whatever. Thanks, Gordon. Simon, what are your thoughts on what makes a good horror film? Well, it's not a genre I'm really particularly interested in bothered about, to be honest. I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to horror movies. It's not the older 70s and 80s movies that I've really ever watched. I don't think I've watched anything past Blair Witch in recent years. But in those days, it just seemed to be this template for horror movies, pretty much, was you start off with maybe a group going off somewhere, a bit remote location. They're all happy and everything's going all right. Then, as Graham said, things start to happen, a little bits here and there, maybe something scares them. It used to build up suspense. The horror didn't normally start for quite a while into the film, so you just don't know when something's going to happen. Quite often you get the old jump scare thrown in in the first half an hour. Just sometimes it's a false alarm, like you say, a cat will jump out, and you get the jump, and you're like, oh, oh, it's only that. Okay, that's fine. And then it just builds up, and suddenly all oh, hell can unleash. There's always like a group of people that get bumped off bit by bit, and it always seems to work. And I actually quite like that. Sometimes the violence was higher than others. The gore was there. I'm not a big fan of blood <laughs> in the real world, but somehow I quite like seeing it on screen. So a bit of gore, I think, is a good thing. And some of those deaths and some of the things like Halloween and in Friday the 13th in particular, Jason, some of the kills and the deaths and some of these things just really makes my skin creep, which obviously is exactly the point of the film. So for the old-style films, I think that is really good. Things like Halloween and Friday the 13th, I think they still hold up well today. They're still shocking, and I just think that kind of template with the old-school face mask on makes it look scary and especially in things like halloween when they she does actually pull his mask off and he the look in his eyes is just like my god this is exactly what the doctor said he's so evil it just brings an extra bit to the movie so i look back fondly at those films and think this is where it all started this 70s and early 80s i think just brought these new films out different directors and they took horror to where it is today okay lots of good points again there I've looked at it more from the filmmaking perspective. So for me, the important components of a horror film are cinematography. I think it's important to be clever with the use of the camera, given that there's usually a lack of light in the films. Try not to give too much away about the scary characters, but still make it clear what's going on. There's a lot of use of steady cam in slasher movies to put you behind the mask of the killer. I also think one of the most important things of a horror film is soundtrack. Good soundtrack can be the difference between an average horror film and a great one. And films like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street in particular are all the more creepy because of their soundtracks. As Graham mentioned, the build-up of tension is important. Don't let the film blow its load too soon. Increase the tension and atmosphere gradually before a big scare. And don't give one scare after another after another. Let the audience sort of recover and then give them another scare rather than just keep piling it on. Although that approach is quite good. For example, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just relentless once it gets going. In terms of what kind of films I like, I've always been a big fan of classic slasher films such as Halloween and Friday the 13th, as you mentioned, Simon. But on reflection, I think the best horror films are actually those that have a bit of comedy in them as well there's something about the two opposite ends of the emotional spectrum laughter and terror that work really well together so i'm not talking about full-on comedy horrors like ghostbusters or Shaun of the dead examples i'd give would be american werewolf in london reanimator scream as some of you mentioned evil dead 2 and cabin in the woods is a more recent example so they've all got plenty of horrible moments but also some little moments of amusement or irony or whatever that just kind of give you a little breather and then they throw another scare in to increase the impact of them can i ask a question because we've all said what makes a good horror 
one of my favourite types of film are the home invasion films and things like The Purge and Your Next, which I watched on your recommendation, Matt. Thanks very much for that. I wouldn't call them horrors, but they've got all of the elements that make a good horror for me. I'm not sure whether the horror or just some kind of threat thriller. So what is a horror film? Yeah, I did make that point earlier about the screen movies because I consider them to be thrillers, really. They're almost whodunits because you know that one person in the cast is the killer. I mean, it's just a slightly gorier version of Murder, She Wrote, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I mean, I think for me, what defines it as a horror is scenes of violence, scenes that scare you, scenes that disturb you. And all those films have those scenes in the plot of a more traditional type of film. So, by the sounds of things, we've all watched horror films when we were younger, so can we all remember what the first horror film was that scared us? So I'll kick this one off. The film that I remember that first scared me was American Werewolf in London, which I've obviously just mentioned. I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but it was whenever it debuted on UK TV, so probably around about 1985, I would guess, which would have made me nine years old. And my mum recorded it off the telly onto our Betamax video and she censored some bits out by recording some fuzz over some of the more terrifying parts. But to me, not the most terrifying part because to me the most terrifying sequence in the whole film is the beginning where they're walking across the moors and the wolf's howling. This is still the most horrendous wolf howl sound effect that I've ever heard and that was then made worse for me personally by we were once travelling through a countryside area with my parents at night and my dad had blue moon on the stereo so that didn't help. Also really terrifying was the London Underground scene, which again still comes to my mind any time I've used the tube at night. I'm sure anyone else who's seen the film feels the same, so that's definitely the film that scared the pants off me when I was a young'un. Simon, what about you? Mine was the 1982 like, comedy and horror anthology film, Creep Show, directed by George A. Romero and written by Stephen King. I just remember seeing that. We, we had a all group of us were allowed to watch it, got it from the video shop. The film consists of five short stories, and each one of us sort of seemed to be more creeped out by the different stories. And the one I hated the most was the one called They're Creeping Up on You. It's about this guy who's obsessed with cleanliness, and he lives in his high-tech apartment or the latest technology for 1982 on it and he spots a cockroach and then just goes and gets rid of it and he starts moaning to the maintenance guy on the phone saying that they've got cockroaches in here what's going on and gradually as they keep coming out and they're getting more and I didn't like them anyway and they seen these things creeping around the flat and then eventually there's a power cut and they just come out of everywhere and they eventually eat the heart attack and dies but then the whole room is empty and he's just lying on the bed and next minute you see the skin of this guy starts moving up and down and suddenly the blood comes out and suddenly they all erupt from inside him and it just literally fills up this whole glass room full of them and that for me was just that was it I was obsessed with checking my room and going around the house constantly looking for them and the other stories are pretty good as well but that's the one that just like kept me awake at night for quite a while thank you Graham I thought this was a really interesting question and I gave it a lot of thought and I came up with several different possibilities the first one that came to mind was Jaws, which I estimate I saw when I was about nine or ten years old. And this gave me a lot of sleepless nights. To recap what we were saying earlier, is it really a horror film or is it a thriller? I don't know. I think there's certainly a lot of horror elements in it. And also, I think what always frightened me so much about this was the fact it was real. Because this is not about some slasher or supernatural thing you can say to yourself. It's not real. It doesn't exist. You know that sharks do exist. And there are sharks out there that kill 
I always found it quite ironic that my parents were quite happy to let me watch Jaws when I was nine or ten. But a few years later, when no doubt they'd been reading in the Daily Mail about all the video nasties, some lightweight horror movies such as Fright Night, they weren't too happy about me watching. And I remember thinking, well, you let me watch Jaws all those years ago, so <laughs> what's the difference now? But then after giving this a lot of thought, I realised actually there was a movie that probably scared me more when I was younger as well. And it's funny what you were saying, Matt, earlier about sometimes horror movies having that tinge of comedy to them as well, giving that extra edge. And actually, this is a comedy movie, but it has horror elements to it. But as I watched it when I was probably five or six years old, there's a couple of scenes in it that affected me quite a lot. And the movies carry on screaming. And there's two scenes in it that really creep me out. The first one is where the policemen discover just a finger of one of the monsters. And in classic horror movie style, they give it to some mad scientist, who I think actually is played by John Pertwee, who was about to play Doctor Who at the time. And he regenerates the monster just from this finger, which is like classic horror movie thing to do. And obviously the monster appears and then it kills the scientist. And this scene and another one where Charles Hawtrey, who plays a public convenience janitor or something, he's killed by... By this monster as well and although the killing is off screen what is intimated is that he's effectively flushed down the toilet by this monster and just the imagery and the tone of it affected me an awful lot and whilst it might not have given me as many sleepless nights as Jaws did watching it when I was five or six I wasn't really laughing very much I was hiding behind the sofa Okay, interesting recollection there I do agree with you about Jaws by the way does anyone know what rating Jaws is? It's a 12 now, but well, it? it must have been a 15 back then, I should imagine. Strange, isn't it, that our parents let us watch that at such a young age, because I think I watched Jaws probably around the same time I watched American Werewolf in London. Anyway, Gordon, what was your first horror film? I'll just film say that it? the reason they let us watch it was it was PG when it was released. Right. I think it's funny that two of the films that I was going to talk about and discounted have both already been mentioned. Jaws was particularly terrifying as a young child, that one bit where they find the boat and they go underwater with the torches swimming around and the head comes up that just terrified me that the other one going back to simon talking about creep show and it was exactly the same element of creep show it was the bugs and that scene where they all start coming out of his face absolutely did me in and i think that probably is a big part to why i have an unhealthy fear of insects now but the first horror film that i remember actually watching in full was the evil dead and I was 11 and was babysitting with my friend for his little sister and we found a pirate video of it so we decided we'd have a scare fest so we put the film on and we poured ourselves a giant goblet of sacrificial lamb's blood which was actually cherryade and we put Michael Jackson's Thriller on the record player and even with the sound down and the music up I just remember how terrifying that film was and how uneasy it made me feel all the way through especially the infamous forest scene it was horrible and that forest scene I think has given me a bit of an uneasiness about any kind of forest horror now Cabin in the Woods or Blair Witch or anything like that that's got the outdoors I find particularly scary in films so I think Evil Dead was definitely the one that did it for me another excellent film although I think the sequel's better Thanks, guys. Moving on, as has been mentioned already a couple of times, the jump scare is pretty much the go-to technique for frightening the audience in horror films, especially low-budget ones where more drawn-out scare tactics are rarely used. There are innumerable films with surprised cats landing on the protagonist or masked killers hiding in a corner, but which film do you think has the best jump scare scene of all time? Simon? 
for me is Ridley Scott's Alien. There's quite a few jump scares in this movie, but the one that stands out for me is when they first land on the planet after getting the signal, not being too sure whether it's a call for help or a warning. Um, they go into this alien ship. Um, John Hurt plays a character called Kane, and he finds a creature dead on the spin. Below that, there's a load of what seems like eggs in a sort of trench. You get a little bit of a jump, and he, he's going along the side, and he slips into it underneath mist across the top, keeping these things moist or whatever. And he drops down, and you, you think then it's like, oh, bloody hell, all right, okay, I'm fine, no worries. And then he goes up to the eggs, and there's a slight blow from it, and it cracks open. And he realizes it's organic, and he sort of starts trying to lift that flat and seeing that there is a life under this thing. And you just want to say, well, don't lean forward, don't do it. But he leans forward, and then this alien just literally jumps at him, smashes through his helmet, and fixes itself to his face. And it's just so quick. And you just see him collapse back with the helmet already caved in. And it's just that quickness of it suddenly just shooting forward. You just don't expect it. It's a classic, classic jump scene. Thank you. Alien, I think we would say it's a horror film, although not perhaps a traditional horror film. And my choice is also not what you call a horror film, but it certainly has some horrific moments. It's the 1995 film Seven, starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, who are detectives investigating a psychopath who kills his victims in ways related to the seven deadly sins. And the scene that I'm talking about is where the two detectives discover the sloth victim, who is a known child molester who's been slowly starved to death over the course of a year. And as one of the SWAT team leans over the body and says, you got what you deserved, he suddenly wakes up with a splutter. And the shock of that the first time around was incredible because he just assumed he was dead. And suddenly he wakes up and he's coughing and spluttering and he's got no tongue because he's eating his own tongue off. It was a proper jump out your skin moment. He's alive! He's alive! The cut trucker's alive! Stop eating! Hands out! Emergency on that ambulance! Graham, what about you? Yeah, I think that's an excellent choice, Matt. I remember going to see Seven at the cinema and no one in the cinema was expecting that, so a pretty good jump shot there. My choice is from the 2007 Spanish horror film Wreck. It's about an outbreak of some sort in an apartment block. It's another one of these found footage movies, this time following a television reporter and her cameraman entering the block, along with the emergency services who have been called because there's strange things going on, people going mad and attacking each other. You'd never quite find out what's going on, but there's a lot of people who are infected and are attacking other people. And these two main characters, the television reporter and her cameraman, slowly try to find out what's going on, escaping various zombies throughout the whole film. Then towards the end, the television reporter is left and she ends up trying to find out where the source of the infection is and she ends up creeping into this attic. The scene is a bit reminiscent of Aliens, when the character Hicks slowly pushes the roof up to see all the aliens coming. Obviously not aliens this time, and it's a little bit differently handled. But it's masterfully directed this, because obviously you're seeing what the character's seeing. Very slowly the camera pans round. You can hear her panting as well. She's obviously absolutely terrified, and it pans round and it pans round, and then boom, the zombie boy appears and grabs her, and it's the end of the movie. And that, to me, is just a masterful shock because of the way they just make it linger just that little bit longer to make it really effective. Cool, sounds good. I have heard Rex, a good film, and I haven't seen it yet, so you've given away the ending, but I look forward to being scared anyway. That just leaves Gordon then. What was your best jump scare? Well, I was almost going to pick the Jaws sunken head scene that I mentioned earlier, but I didn't think that was enough of a horror film to choose. So like Simon, I've gone with Alien, the original sci-fi survival horror, and it absolutely scared the pants off me when Dallas almost literally bumped into the xenomorph. 
You've got the darkness only permeated by Dallas's rifle torch, the eerie silence, and then pow! The creature appears with a blood-curdling scream that I can still hear now in my head, and it was definitely a change of trousers moment. <laughs> yeah, that's another good one. Good selection. I think that must mean that Alien wins our best jump scare award, which I wasn't planning to give, but since two people went for it, it must win. Okay, moving on. The slasher movie's been a staple of horror films for about the last 40 years or so. So we're going to have what we're calling the Slasher Showdown, which is a kind of knockout tournament featuring eight of cinema's most well-known psychopaths to see who will crown the king of the movie killers. The first round has been drawn at random, and from there the winners will move on to semi-finals and a grand final. We'll briefly talk about each matchup and then vote to decide a winner. Your decisions can be made either on your opinion of the movies the two characters have appeared in, or simply how you think they fare against each other, or a combination, or whatever you like, really. In the event of a tie, the winner will be decided based on the approximate number of kills from their films, which I've taken from a Rotten Tomatoes article. So, quarterfinals first then. First up, we have Leatherface versus Michael Myers. Leatherface is the principal villain of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. He wears a mask made from human flesh and wields a chainsaw, unsurprisingly. Inspired by real-life serial killer Ed Gein, he's part of one of cinema's most dysfunctional families that kills and eats their victims and then makes macabre statues and furniture from their bones. Nice. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released in 1974 and arguably marks the origin of the masked serial killer in cinema. It's had three direct sequels, a reboot that starred Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger before they hit the big time, plus a remake and a prequel to that remake, and an eighth film simply entitled Leatherface is due for release soon. Michael Myers is a central character in the Halloween series and began killing at the tender age of six when he stabbed his promiscuous teenage sister to death on Halloween night. After 15 years he escaped from the mental hospital that he'd been held in and returned to his hometown to begin a killing spree that targeted his younger sister. His chosen weapon is a simple kitchen knife and he wears a distinctive white mask that was originally based on a likeness of William Shatner. The Halloween film series began in 1978 and has a strange lineage with three direct sequels, three alternate universe sequels, Rob Zombie's remake which has its own sequel and one film, Halloween 3, which has absolutely nothing to do with Michael Myers whatsoever. So, Leatherface versus Michael Myers. Simon, what is your thoughts about this matchup? After watching both movies again, out of the two characters, I'm going to go with Michael Myers. Texas Chainsaw Mask and Leatherface, I was mildly disappointed, to be honest, with the film. It wasn't as scary and as hard-hitting as I expected it to be. There was not a lot of gore in it, even when he was cutting the head off one of the guys and he put the other girl up on the hook. You didn't even see that. And 20 minutes of film, just him chasing that last girl around in the woods. It's almost like Benny Hill with the chainsaws, to be honest. But Michael Myers is a completely different kettle of fish. The cinematography and the direction of that film was really good. He escapes from the thing and goes back and the doctor, like very well Donald Pleasance, knows that he's going back there and he goes back and just the way he gradually stalks people and it's just the tension and the horror of it really. The one bit I really liked is when Jamie Lee Curtis' character has just witnessed all the people who had died in the house and she's just backed into a wall and then very subtly in this little closet just behind her, you see the light comes on and you just see his mask, nothing else, he's right behind her and that really made my skin creep. I just think Michael Myers is just a bit more to him, he's more subtle and not running around with a chainsaw and I just think he's the better of the two so I'm going with Michael Myers. Thanks, Simon. Your point about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is dead right. It's a film that's notorious because of its name rather than any gore or violence that actually occurs in the film. I do think it's a great film, but I'm also going to vote for Michael Myers simply because Leatherface gets taken out at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre over the well-placed wrench thrown by the truck driver, and I think he's just not a match for Michael Myers, even though he has got a chainsaw. Graham? 
I've gone by judging it on the films and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Simon said, is not really very scary, pretty poorly made and certainly never engaged me on any level. So as a massive fan of John Carpenter's movies, I think Halloween is a great film, superbly directed and also has one of my favourite soundtracks of all time as well. So easy one for me, Michael Myers. Well, it's a bit of a moot point now, but Gordon, are you going to make it a clean sweep? I am, yeah, because I think Michael Myers is an absolutely classic serial killer, psychopath, whatever. Whereas I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's more about his weapon. Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with him personally. It's just that he's got this pretty cool weapon. Fair enough. So Michael Myers dominates Leatherface and progresses to the semi-finals. Our next match is Chucky versus Jason Voorhees. Something of a mismatch, I think. Chucky is definitely our most unusual participant, being a child's doll that just happens to have been possessed by the spirit of Charles Lee Ray, also known as the Lakeshore Strangler. Over the course of six films, his spirit has possessed numerous good guy dolls and used them to deal out violent death and foul language to numerous victims. The first Child's Play film was released in 1988 and five sequels have followed and a seventh film is due out next year. Chucky has consistently been voiced by Brad Dourif, who also played the character of Charles Lee Ray in the first film. And up against him we have Jason Voorhees, the most prolific of cinematic serial killers. Jason is best known for his trademark hockey mask and machete. Despite drowning as a child, he returned from his watery grave in the first Friday the 13th film, only to see his mother beheaded to bring her murderous rampage to an end. Since then, he spent the last 35 years butchering anyone that dares invade his territory of Camp Crystal Lake. And since the first Friday the 13th film in 1980, Jason has appeared in eight of the nine sequels. He was actually dead in one of them, and even ended up in space for Jason X, and he's also featured in a reboot of the series and faced off against another famous slasher that we'll come to later. So I watched Child's Play and Curse of Chucky recently and they're both quite good films. There's some good amusing death scenes. They've got that vein of comedy that I was talking about earlier. There's one scene in Child's Play where he's been talking to the kid that's got him as the doll but he hasn't spoken to anyone else in his evil Charles Lee Ray voice and the mum's shaking him and trying to get him to talk and finally unleashes a tirade of expletives to her and calls her all kinds of unpleasant names which I think is a really funny moment. But having said that, Friday the 13th is one of my favourite horror series and basically what we've got here is a very angry but small doll versus a very large indestructible zombie powerhouse with a very bad attitude so jason crushes him into a plasticky pulp graham what do you think on this one well i'm gonna go with the movies again i've only seen the original child's play and i've also seen bride of chucky which i thought was extremely funny as well as horrifying in places i'm a huge fan of brad if he's another one of those b-movie actors that just always entertains in all the movies he's in Jason Voorhees, the first Friday the 13th, I really love that film and it's got a great shock moment towards the end which really appeals to me a lot but simply because I think that the Child's Play movies are quite original and because they've kept up a decent standard as opposed to the Friday the 13th movies which have in my opinion just gone down and down and down, I'm going to go for Chucky. Whew, controversial. Gordon? Well for me Chucky is reminiscent of Yoda. The reason I say that is if you look at good Chucky, you know, you would not believe that that's going to turn into this horrible monster. But then he gets his slick back hair, his scars all over his face and becomes this absolute demon. And that's a bit like when Yoda's fighting Count Dooku. He comes on with his walking stick and you think there's nothing in him. You know, he's going to be a pushover. And then he just turns into this hyper speed, hyper fighting killing machine. And I think that's exactly what Chucky would do. I think Jason would be taken completely unawares by this cutesy little doll and then it'd just go into a maelstrom of violence and rage and chop him to shreds. So I'm voting Chucky. 
Okay, two for Chucky. Has Jason got a chance, Simon? Jason very much has a chance, looking at the different characters and the deaths involved. Chucky is excellent. It is amusing. I'm thinking about the comedy side of things and the way he speaks and what he says. There's some good one-liners. And there are a few pretty blood-curdling deaths in it as well. But for me, Jason's just no parallel. The variety and the unspeakable things that he does to people. If you go through a compilation of all his deaths from all the movies, it's just incredible. I just think Jason's a killing machine par excellence and there's no competition. So, Jason for me. Okay, so we've got a split decision, which means we refer to the body count totals. And I don't think it's any surprise to learn that Chucky's body count is 38 and Jason with the biggest body count in movie history of 146 kills. Despite putting up a brave fight, a braver fight than I expected, Chucky is defeated and Jason proceeds to a semi-final with Michael Myers, which should be a hell of a battle. So we'll move on to our third matchup. These are two more perhaps cerebral assassins. Freddy Krueger versus Hannibal Lecter. Freddy Krueger was a child murderer who was freed on a technicality but met vigilante justice as he was burned to death by the vengeful parents of his victims. That didn't stop him though as he returned to torment the children of Elm Street by invading their dreams and murdering them in their sleep with his legendary razor clawed glove. Freddy was played by Robert England and became the poster child for 80s horror. Following his debut in A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, he appeared in five sequels, the spin-off film Wes Craven's New Nightmare, faced off against his arch-rival in Freddy vs. Jason, and was portrayed by Jackie Earl Haley for a remake of the original film. The creation of author Thomas Harris, Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter is a brilliant psychiatrist who just happens to also be a sadistic killer and eater of human organs, particularly liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti. Hannibal was first brought to life on screen by Brian Cox in the 1986 film Manhunter, but was most memorably portrayed by Sir Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs, for which he won the Best Actor Oscar. Hopkins also portrayed Lecter in Hannibal and Red Dragon, and there has also been an origin film, Hannibal Rising, and a highly rated TV show where the role of Lecter was taken on by Mads Mikkelsen. So Graham, how are Freddy and Hannibal facing off against one another? Well, in a different way to the previous rounds, I'm going to go on the actual characters on this one. Freddy Krueger, like you say, he's the child murderer and his evil spirit lives on and enters the dreams of all these teenagers and kills them in numerous gory and inventive ways. But he's generally defeated at the end of each film, apparently, as opposed to Hannibal, who is really a different type of serial killer. He's suave, sophisticated, appreciative of all the finer things in life and also a ruthless, determined and highly intelligent killer and i'm sure he'd find a way about foxing freddy krueger so i'm gonna go with hannibal that's one vote for hannibal gordon well i think freddy krueger's quite a cowardly killer in that he's a child killer for a start and i think hannibal lecter is intelligent and he's quite proud of his kills i think freddy is evil but hannibal actually believes in what he's doing Hannibal wouldn't stop at anything but freddy would probably cry like a baby when he meets his match so i'm going hannibal Two for Hannibal. Simon, which way are you going? For me, the Elm Street films, they're woven into the fabric of 80s youth culture and everyone mentions Elm Street. I look back at them today and have the bits and pieces from it and I just didn't find it particularly scary or horrifying, to be honest. Some of the death scenes looked quite poor. I wasn't impressed by it. One of them, we've got this kid on the floor and then this kid just has a cloak and suddenly becomes a wizard and fires some stuff down, smashes up this motorised wheelchair and then makes Freddy look a bit pathetic in it, to be honest. But the thing about Hannibal Lecter, he's the real deal when it comes to this. He personifies evil to me. There's no makeup, no effects. It's just pure insanity and evil behind a very calm persona. I find that extremely more horrifying than Freddy in the dreams. So for me, it's going to be Hannibal Lecter all day long. 
Okay, well, perhaps a little bit of a surprise, but Hannibal's now taken this round. I was a bit in two minds about this one myself. Freddy, I think, was a great character, but they did kind of ruin the character a little bit with the last couple of films, which veered a bit too much towards comedy and one-liners. The first film, I do think, is still a terrifying film. But I also think Hannibal Lecter's got the advantage of his advanced intelligence. So if Freddy invaded his dreams, let's assume that that's the mechanism that he would use, then I think Hannibal would be able to outfox Freddy within the dream world. So let's go with a clean sweep for Hannibal. Freddy Krueger is eliminated in the first round. That is pretty much of a shock, isn't it? I think so. Freddy out. That showdown with Jason isn't going to happen. On to our final round, and these two characters are from more recent films than the characters that we've talked about so far. We're looking at Ghostface versus Jigsaw, two very different kinds of killers as well, it should be said. Ghostface is the antagonist of the Scream films and is fairly unique in that he's played by different characters, both within the first film and across the sequels, each of whom have different motives for adopting this Ghostface mask. Despite this, the villain's modus operandi is the same, calling up potential victims on the phone using a scary voice changer, instilling terror in them before he appears in his ghostly mask and black cloak and chases them wielding a sharp knife. Directed by Wes Craven, the Scream films revived the slasher movie in the mid-90s, bringing modern technology and cruel irony to the genre and showing audiences a more devious and intelligent side to the serial killer. Three sequels followed the 1996 original, and a TV show launched last year is about to kick off its second season. The killer from the Saw franchise was christened Jigsaw by cops who discovered his calling card was a puzzle piece shaped chunk of flesh carved from his victims. Unlike our other movie murderers, Jigsaw is not usually a hands-on killer. Instead, he places his victims in elaborate traps which they must seriously hurt either themselves or others to escape from. The man behind these traps is John Kramer, a man with terminal cancer that is determined to make others learn the value of life by completing his fiendish puzzles. All of these can be solved, so he actually doesn't necessarily want his victims to die, but teach them that life is important, although when he meets his demise in later instalments, the people that continue his legacy are not as fair. Saw was released in 2004 and became a huge hit, spawning six sequels over the following six years, all released in time for Halloween. It holds the Guinness World Record for the most successful horror film series based on box office receipts, and an eighth film, Saw Legacy, is due for release next year. So, Gordon, two different characters from more recent horror film franchises. How do you think they'd face off? Well, I see this one as pretty straightforward, really. Jigsaw is already lying in the corner of the ring pretending to be dead as Ghostface glides silently into the ring. Ghostface looks around and quips, there are certain rules that one must abide in order to successfully survive a slasher showdown. For instance, number one, we already saw your movie so don't play dead. And with that, he raises his kitchen knife and skillfully sticks it in the back of Jigsaw. Game over, first round knockout to Ghostface. (laughs) Brilliantly done. Simon, what do you think? To me, Jigsaw, from what I've been through, how reams of these traps that he sets. I really like the idea of that. And there's just one that's going, this sort of thing, when she had her arms up the top in the signal hands, and if she moved in a certain way, it would cut her hands off from the wrist. And that was just the whole horror of being in that position, even if you had a chance to solve a puzzle and get out of it. Based on the character, like Gordon says, if they were just face up to each other, I presume Ghostface would probably kill him. But with these traps and just imagining yourself in that position, I just find that more horrific. So I prefer Jigsaw to Ghostface for me. Okay, that's one vote each then. I'm basing the two characters on how they operate. So I'm having Ghostface being put into a trap by Jigsaw that he must escape to survive. And I think if there's anyone who's going to do whatever needs to be done to get out of a trap, whether it be fish a key out of someone's intestines, chop someone's arms off or whatever he needs to do to solve this trap, I think another psychopath is probably the person to do it. So I'm also going to go for Ghostface because I think he's got the mentality to be able to solve one of Jigsaw's 
those games. So that's two for Ghostface and one for Jigsaw. Graham, what do you think? I was going to go back to judging this one by the movies, but I'm a huge fan of both these movies, although for different reasons. And both sets of movies, my interest really fades an awful lot after the second instalment. So I've gone for the decision based on the characters as well. And I fully agree with your assessment, Matt, in that he would have the determination, Ghostface, to get out of whatever trap you put him in. If you cast your mind back to the first movie when the two Ghostface killers are stabbing each other just so it looked like they weren't the killers it showed you that the killers that take on this mantle are prepared to do anything and are quite psychotic so would probably escape from one of Jigsaw's traps and win this round so that's 3-1 to Ghostface and Ghostface proceeds to the semi-finals which we'll start right now our first semi-final then pits two of movie's most famous serial killers Simon how do you think Michael Myers would shape up against Jason Voorhees it's quite hard one for me because I think they're both excellent characters Jason is this killing machine, while Michael Myers is the more patient and stealthy one. But I think Jason would just have a bit more about him as a tougher and a stronger character. I think that Jason would have the upper hand, so I'm going to go for Jason in this round. I pretty much agree with that. I think they're both great characters, and Halloween is undoubtedly a better film than any of the Friday the 13th films, which pretty much copycatted that film. But Jason is an unstoppable killing machine. Michael Myers is a killing machine that has been stopped on a couple of occasions, so I'm going to go with Jason as well with a machete to the head graham yeah my thinking's the same as you guys jason's pretty much unkillable does kind of make the films a bit pointless to be honest but i think as a character i think he kind of make mince me out of michael myers so despite my reservations because i think halloween is the best film out of all of them i'm gonna go with jason okay gordon will it be a clean sweep Absolutely, I was going to make exactly the same point. The Friday the 13th films are nowhere near as good as Halloween, but the character is better. So I'm going for Jason. That's a clean sweep for Jason, who wipes the floor with Michael Myers. Let's move quickly on to our second semi-final, which will be Hannibal Lecter versus Ghostface. Graham, how do you see this one going? Well, I think using the same logic that I used in the previous round, I think Hannibal Lecter would most likely outfox Ghostface in some way. He would work out a way to find out who it is and visit them in the middle of the night when they're sleeping because even Ghostface killers need to sleep and sort them out that way. So I'm going for Hannibal again. Gordon? I think whilst both of them would do whatever is necessary, I think Hannibal Lecter is more likely to put himself in harm's way to get the result. Whereas I think, just like Freddy, I think that Ghostface would be a little bit cowardly. Whilst, as Graham said, there was the scene where they were stabbing each other, I don't think that was real danger. Whereas I think Hannibal would do absolutely anything to get the job done. So Hannibal for me. Simon? I agree with the guys. Hannibal Lecter is far more intelligent and far more evil. And I just think he would have the know-how and like you say, he would work away beyond Ghostface capabilities and would finish him off. So yeah, Hannibal Lecter for me. Which once again renders it a bit of a moot point, but I think I'd probably veer towards Ghostface if it was a straight one-on-one contest due to the fact that the people that portray him are usually a lot younger than Hannibal Lecter. But on the other hand, Hannibal Lecter probably does have the intelligence to overcome Ghostface. So it's Hannibal either way, whichever one I vote. That takes us then to our grand final. Two very different types of serial killer. Jason Voorhees versus Hannibal Lecter and I'll go first on this one and I think Hannibal yes he is intelligent he's wily but in the end once again Jason is an unstoppable killing machine that even if you chop bits of him off he just comes back for more so unless Hannibal gets very creative and very lucky I think it's Jason that's going to take the prize on this one Gordon if Hannibal were to win then it'd be the biggest banquet he's ever had because he'd just keep coming back and 
But I don't think he would because Hannibal, regardless of how evil he is, is human. So I think Hannibal would lose this one. Simon? Yeah, I agree. Jason's just unstoppable. And I don't think Hannibal, even with his intelligence, would be able to work around that. It's intelligence versus primeval power and indestructibility. So for me, it's Jason all the time. And Graham, any vote for Hannibal? No, Hannibal, he works out an elaborate trap. He traps Jason, maybe even kills him. And Hannibal, just as he's gloating and about to take a part of Jason to have for his dinner... Jason stands up and chops his head off. (laughs) Nicely put for the finale there. So after barely making it through the first round against Chucky, Jason prevails and is crowned the winner of our slasher showdown. Does he actually speak in any of the movies? No, I don't think so. He screams a bit when he's a kid in the first one. I think that's about it. He's a silent assassin. Silent but violent. (laughs) Yeah, perfectly put. Okay, so moving back to a slightly more serious topic then. Horror's been around, obviously, as I said at the start of this section, virtually since film has existed. There's been a lot of horror films, a lot of clones of horror films, a lot of different sub-genres, crossovers with other types of film. Do you think that horror has had its day? Has the horror genre run out of ideas? And if you do think that it's run out of ideas, what needs to be done to make the genre interesting again? Just my thoughts on this first. Has it run out of ideas? I think pretty much it has. There isn't really much left to do in the horror genre that hasn't been done before, and there are way too many unimaginative remakes and rehashes of old movies. But that said, I don't think it's completely had its day. There have been some interesting twists on tried and tested horror tales in recent years, and I think that's the best chance that the horror genre's got. The ones that I can think of that stand out, again, like I mentioned earlier, ones that have a hint of comedy to them. Cabin in the Woods, I think, was a witty twist on a story made famous by films like the evil dead and it still has plenty of gruesome and scary moments but there's some funny ones in there too and a film that gordon mentioned and i also watched recently is your next which takes a home invasion horror genre and puts a unique twist on it and while some of the twists were a bit predictable i found it way more entertaining than i expected it to be and there's some really great moments with some of the deaths that occur in that film which are just really really well done and really surprising which having watched hundreds of horror films probably it's difficult to be surprised so generally i think originality is sorely lacking from most horror films but there'll always be the odd standout film in the genre blending horror with other genres seems to be the best way for it to survive and also TV seems to be a more prominent place for interesting horror now American Horror Story, Hannibal and True Blood have all brought horror to the TV screen and still managed to keep some of the gore that you'd expect from those genres so Gordon what do you think? Is horror dead? Well not at all it just needs to work hard to innovate and much like last month's topic of animation the films need to do more to re-energize the genre and unfortunately nowadays it seems that only the lower budget films have the balls to do that i'm talking your mid-budget horror films the ones that are made probably between two and ten million dollars and some of those have been fantastic I mentioned the purge films already i thought they were really unique at the time and some of the other films that i mentioned earlier blair witch final destination it follows they just did something new or brought back something that horror films had lost for a while so it's all about re-engineering the horror genre i don't want them to go away i just want them to become a little bit cleverer yeah good point graham what are your thoughts if you had asked me this question in the late 90s i'd have simply said yes we had lots of monster movies 
characters like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees were a joke more than anything. And it was all about the messiest and most ludicrous or funny killings. And as I said earlier, the so-called reinvention of the genre, thanks to Wes Craven and the Scream movies, never really sat with me as proper horror movies as such. And then the movie that changed it really for me at the time was The Blair Witch Project, which introduced the found footage type of movie. And that, I think, gave the genre a good jolt in the arm with the dramatic payoff and the part at the end that stays with you. I know a lot of people aren't big fans of them, but the first two Paranormal Activity films I really like as well. I like the way that the stories interweave. And I think those type of movies and the realisation that you can just have a quiet film with not a lot going on, but just that kind of creepy thing going on in the background, I think they realised that that was a way to get effective shocks and to make movies more scary. Whether this is starting to wear thin a little bit now, I think it probably is. And I think, as you alluded to earlier, Matt, where the genre needs to proceed is by combining itself with other genres. It's done it effectively with comedy in the past. But I think it definitely needs to have a new angle somewhere because it is starting to get a little bit stale. Having said that, it could be just that, in general, cinema is getting a bit stale at the moment. But until we get the next big thing in horror, I think at the moment, yeah, it's just kind of treading water a little bit, unfortunately. Rounding it off then, Simon? I don't think it has. I think, obviously, any genre of movies, you get to a point that you're going to start scratching around for ideas. I just think there's always going to be a place for horror in the movie industry. It's not going to go away because people always seem to be, you know, they like being scared shitless of watching a film. It's a genre that people just go back to. So, as you say, they just need something different. What does inspire me is things like the new film, The Girl with All the Gifts. It's that maybe films based on fiction, which obviously there has been over the years, there's been loads of those. I think that could be a way because obviously the book is written by someone outside the industry. They're written by authors and they will have the different ideas and each book tries to be different. And making films based on these horror books is probably maybe a way of keeping something different and the sort of fresh ideas come out of authors and it maybe that's the way that keeps things fresh so hopefully there'll be a direction where it will actually get different and maybe basing it on fiction is the only way it can actually reinvent itself well there certainly are a lot of horror books out there that haven't been made into films so there's you know a well of stories to draw from there okay so let's round this horrifying topic off with the obvious question What's your favourite scary movie? Graham, let's start with you. My favourite horror movie is The Exorcist from 1973. I believe it's the most successful horror movie of all time, or certainly one of them anyway. This movie is my favourite, along with The Shining, is probably my second favourite, because it creates that real atmosphere that there's something horribly wrong. It starts out normal, although you do get a couple of scenes earlier on that suggest that something's going to go wrong. It's obviously another possession film along the lines of the Paranormal Activity films. And I think what appeals to me about it so much is the idea that it's someone that the other characters know very well, obviously a daughter in this instance, and how this character can change so much and someone so innocent turns so evil thanks to the possession by the demon. And it just gives it that edge, that unpredictability. There's many brilliant scenes in it, such as when the temperature plummets and you get really good atmosphere in it all the time. And there were also rumours of a cursed set as well. So there's like an interesting backstory behind it, whether it's true or not is another matter. And I think it's got a very powerful ending where Father Karras takes the demon on himself and then flings himself to his death before he can do any harm to the other characters. Everyone remembers Linda Blair and Max von Sydow, of course. But for me, it's Jason Miller as Father Karras. That is the real standout. As an atheist, I'm obviously not convinced by the religious themes, but for the reasons I've described, and I think it's also superbly directed, I'm going to go with The Exorcist. Classic choice there. Gordon, what's your favourite? I'm going to go with Final Destination. I love the fact that the bad guy is death himself. 
And I love the ingenuity of the death set pieces, which are like a massive domino rally or something in the way that one action causes another, that causes another, that causes another, that causes a death. I think some of those are absolutely brilliant right through the series. I like that it's possible to cheat death, or is it? And, you know, that will death always catch up with you? I suppose the arcing storylines did get a bit diminished over time, but those great death scenes didn't. It was like watching the board game Mousetrap, only the mouse was a teenager, and the cage that traps the mouse is barbed wire, knives and an anvil. I just think those films were very clever, very funny in their grotesqueness. So I love Final Destination, particularly the first two. Another excellent choice, Simon. Mine's going to be Ridley Scott's Alien. The thing for the tense moments when they land on that planet and start exploring, Kane's unfortunate experience with the alien, followed by this chestburster scene to the alien playing cat and mouse with the crew in the dark corridors and shaft of the Nostromo. It's almost a perfect scary movie to me. It's tense, gripping, excellent direction and lighting and sets that really set the scene and portray the ship. You can just feel the tension on those dark corridors in the shaft, having to try and find where this thing is. It just all adding up to one big scare fest. But in the way, the alien interacts only in sporadic moments that really heightens the tension and makes this classic my favourite scary movie. Excellent choice. The stalk and slash in space. And for my choice, I'm going to go for Halloween. The 1978 John Carpenter classic, which was probably the template for the majority of stalk and slash movies that followed, including other favourites of mine like Friday the 13th and Scream. It established the rules of promiscuous teenagers being bumped off, a faceless and indestructible killer and a virginal final girl that survives the ordeal. Even now it's genuinely creepy and one of the first films to put you behind the mask of the killer. And for a relatively low budget film it has great cinematography including the groundbreaking use of Steadicam. It's also well acted by Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance and has an outstanding and terrifying score by John Carpenter, one of his best, and there are many. And I think it still continues to influence horror films to this day, with It Follows, for example, drawing a lot from it in terms of both the setting and the soundtrack for that film. So yeah, always been my favourite scary movie and probably always will be Halloween. So that concludes our main topic. Thanks everyone for your contributions. But actually we have got a little bit more of a continuation of our Halloween theme because for our three of the best this episode, let's talk about the man referred to as the master of horror, Stephen King. Over the last 40 years, many of his novels have been adapted into movies or TV shows, many of them notoriously dreadful, and he's even written some stories specifically for the screen. So what I want to know is what are your top three Stephen King horror adaptations? So that means you can't go for Shawshank Redemption, The Running Man or Stand By me simon do you want to kick this one off my top three in reverse order would be misery the shining and then carrie at the top misery definitely is unhinged character was just incredible at the time i like the psychological thriller aspect of it shining it's one that everyone remembers maybe not quite as scary as you thought at the time but jack nixon's unhinged character and just gradually descending into madness it's incredibly played i just think he does it excellently i think it's aged as well as it could have done but carrie just the way she's picked on all the time and then gradual things happen and then by the time she knows that she can control things she starts getting her fellow pupils off it's just incredible for its time and i just think that's one of my favorite adaptations from stephen king thanks simon graham what are your three well, I'm a huge fan, generally, of Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> I don't think there's many of them I don't actually like. Even the dross like Graveyard Shift and Sleepwalker, I quite enjoyed watching back in the day. But the three I've gone for are actually kind of smaller adaptations still. I've avoided the obvious ones. The first one is called The Dark Half, which stars Timothy Hutton. I don't know if perhaps it's a tale on Stephen King's psychological problems he's professed to have had over the years, but it's the story about a writer who has a pen name 
a more successful pen name and the author decides to kill off his pen name and concentrate on his own stories and the character comes back to haunt him. It's got a bit more to it than that. It's all about actually a twin that the author has from when he was younger and it's actually quite an atmospheric and solid horror movie without too much gore in it which obviously a lot of Stephen King films have. The second one is 1408 which refers to the room in a hotel. This is a very interesting movie and as far as it only mainly takes place in this hotel room it stars John Cusack as someone who's investigating this room and also Samuel Jackson and it's just an interesting take on what is essentially a haunted hotel room which was always something Stephen King said every horror writer should write a story about and despite being about not a great deal like a lot of Stephen King movies especially The Shining you don't really know whether what's going on is real or imagined from John Cusack's character it's all very well put together and it's one of the better Stephen King adaptations of the last few years and finally I'm going to go for The Night Flyer which is another one adapted from a Stephen King short and it's about basically a vampire that flies from small airport to airport mesmerising people and then killing them off in bloody and gory ways it stars Miguel Ferrer who plays a grizzled reporter who works for a National Enquirer type newspaper and he goes off and gets the story to follow this killer what I like about The Night Flyer best is its ending which I'm not going to reveal but it's got a very interesting ending and it all winds up very nicely whereas a lot of these Stephen King movies they do tend to fall apart a little bit at the end and it's got a really nice and apt conclusion so that makes it one of my favourites as well Certainly some unusual and interesting picks there Gordon, what are your top three? In third place I've got a film that Graham has just rudely dismissed as dross Sleepwalkers It was an original screenplay that King wrote and was directed by Mick Garris, who also directed the acclaimed miniseries The Stand. I saw it in the cinema back in 92 and haven't seen it since, but I seem to remember enjoying it, though that could easily be a lot about Mad Genamic as the young virgin whose blood the sleepwalkers wanted to drink. But I also think it caused a bit of controversy at the time when it was released due to a bit of incest going on between the mother and son supernatural antagonists. In second place, I've gone for Carrie, the first of Stephen King's books to get the movie treatment and still one of the best. It's one of those films where you carry on rooting for Carrie even when she starts killing prom queens, which I quite like. And in first place, I've gone for It. The film absolutely terrified me back in the day. But strangely, it wasn't Pennywise the clown that freaked me out. It was the scene where John by Walton turns on the tap and blood comes out instead of water. That absolutely freaked me out. Okay, more good choices. That just leaves me in third place. I'm going to go for The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film starring Jack Nicholson. The isolated location of the Overlook Hotel makes the perfect backdrop for Jack Torrance's descent into insanity, and whether his visions are supernatural or the hallucinations of a madman, they're still terrifying. It also features some of the most quotable scenes of any horror film. Here's Johnny! And in second place, I'm going for The Mist, a 2007 film based on a novella from 1980 directed by Frank Darabont, who also directed The Shawshank Redemption. It's a story about a small town being overcome by a thick mist, unsurprisingly, containing strange creatures, and the residents attempt to survive. It also features the most depressing end to a film that I've ever seen, but that's actually part of what makes it great. And in first place, I'm going for Salem's Lot, the two-part TV special from 1979. I've not seen it for years, but I know it scared me to death as a kid, especially the surprising appearance of Mr. Barlow, the vampire. And while I suspect it won't have aged well, in my mind, it's one of the most terrifying things ever made for TV. 
So, after all that horror, time to move on to the classic scene, and it's my choice this time. So I've gone for something a little bit more light-hearted. It's from the 1984 comedy Police Academy, and this film is generally derided due to its crude humour and the many sequels that continue to lower the bar for 80s comedy. But the first film actually has some genuinely funny moments, most of which feature the perpetually bewildered Commandant Eric Lassard, who was played by George Gaines, who passed away earlier this year at the ripe old age of 98. And the scene I've chosen is Commandant Lassard's slideshow presentation. And the build-up to this scene is that one of the cadets has been set up to get in trouble by the antagonists of the film, who've paid a woman of ill repute to be in his room when the dorms are inspected. So he enlists the help of Steve Guttenberg's character Mahoney to get rid of this problem. Classic. Classic. It's a great scene, isn't it? It's brilliant. Would you, would you please just calm down? Would you take it easy? I just, I just like to do it in strange places, that's all, okay? Why the hell didn't you say so? I think you'll find this academy one of the most comprehensive in the country. I could point out many, many, many features to you. Um... Squeeze in here. In here? Yeah. You want to do it in a podium? All my life. Right. I'll be right back. Where are you going? Well, I'm not really the customer. The real customer will be here any second now, okay? Oh, okay. Gentlemen, please follow me. We have a very, very fine slide presentation for you. Please take your seats. I think you'll find there's plenty of room for everybody. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to say how sorry I am that everybody could not make it today. For those here, I think you'll find the presentation interesting as well as very, very stimulating. Could we have the lights turned down? Now this first slide shows a very, very interesting thing. Our main building. In slide two, We see another view of it. Oh, my God, you wouldn't believe it. Let us look at this slide for a moment without comment. I think it speaks for itself. Could we have the lights, please? Well, I hope this was as much fun for you as it was for me. <clears throat> Let's have lunch, shall we? And maybe smoke a cigarette? Good speech.
Let's move on to our next section then. As always, each episode we look at an original soundtrack, and this time around the choice goes to Graham. What's your choice? One of my favourite thrillers of recent years is a film called Inside Man, which starred Denzel Washington and Clive Owen and was directed by Spike Lee. And this features a very unusual song, certainly for the film anyway, playing over the beginning credits and also the end credits as a remix of it. Chaya Chaya Bollywood Joint is the name of the track. And it's actually from another movie originally, an Indian movie called Dil Say, and it was remixed for this Hollywood thriller. It's certainly unusual, a real odd fit for the movie, but it somehow works and is a great introduction to what is a pretty decent thriller with an excellent cast. Yeah, good film. I really enjoyed that. Great track as well. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're going to be changing the format of future shows a little bit. That's because next episode will mark the first anniversary of the Movie Muse podcast. So we're going to be freshening things up a little bit. Each show will have a theme that is chosen on the preceding show. The theme can be something as specific as a particular actor or director or as abstract as a colour or object. Within that theme, each member of the team will choose a media item. There'll be a film club, as always, with the host picking the film each month. We'll also continue with the original soundtrack, but we'll expand that with the whole team listening to the chosen soundtrack and sharing their thoughts. One of us will pick something from the small screen, which could be the pilot or a classic episode of a TV show, a short-run series, or even a documentary. And we'll be picking a video game each month to play and review as well. That will usually be related to a film or TV show in some way, but that might depend on the topic. In addition, we'll continue to have our three of the best feature, which will tie in with the theme, and regular features like What Have We Been Watching and Classic Scene will remain as they are. The film club choice will be made on the preceding show. We'll be getting to that in a moment, but some of the other picks will be announced on our Facebook and Twitter feeds, so keep an eye on them and let us know your thoughts about the items we choose. The next show is going to be hosted by Gordon, so he's now going to go through what the theme is and what the film club choice is. Okay, for the first in our new format, I've come up with two potential titles for the next show, and what I need you guys to do is vote on which one we're going to go with. So your first choice is... Or... So that's your two choices, Hotel Motel Holiday Inn or Virtual Insanity. Graham. Okay, well, I'm going for Virtual Insanity. Thank you very much. Simon. Hotel Motel Holiday Inn. Okay, well, that leaves you, Matt, as our host and decision maker. What's the theme going to be for next time? I really think I ought to choose Virtual Insanity, but I can't wait to know what Hotel Motel Holiday Inn is going to involve, so I'm going to go for that. Okay, so Hotel Motel Holiday Inn is our winner. And to be honest, Matt, From what you said earlier, I think you're going to be disappointed. The show is going to be based around movies, TV, games and music with hotels. Not very clever, but there you go. For the film club choice for next time, I've chosen a 1948 Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall film called Key Largo. It's about a man who visits his old friend's hotel only to find gangsters running things. As a hurricane approaches, the man and the mobster's paths are on a collision course. So there we go. Our theme is hotels. Our film club choice is Key Largo. I actually wouldn't mind watching Key Largo because the stuff I've watched with Humphrey Bogart in, I've quite enjoyed. Oh, good. So... I think Key Largo did win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress and was very highly regarded. It's got very good scores on Rotten Tomatoes, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Have you not seen it either? No. Oh, wow, okay. Well, that's certainly an interesting theme for us to all think about. We'll let you know our choices for our categories in due course. 
The sun is coming up now and that brings Movie Muse episode 10 to a close. Don't forget to check out moviemuse.net and our Facebook page for new articles and details of our picks for the next podcast. It's goodbye from the Movie Muse monsters for now, but we'll finish by saying the one thing you're never supposed to say in a horror film. We'll be right back. Bye for now. Seems like it's the only way to survive.